The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So this morning we begin a three-part message series entitled, For His Glory. And my prayer through the series is that God would use it to help us more fully appreciate and understand the primacy of the glory of God. If that concept sounds a bit confusing, it's probably because the topic of the glory of God has been largely overlooked within the contemporary church culture. And I don't believe it's anything where people are intentionally trying to downplay the glory of God. It's probably a little bit more practical than that. And that is we gravitate to those messages or those message series that seem more immediately relevant for whatever it is that we're going through. So if you happen to be going through marriage struggles, then a series on how to have a happy home life sounds very appealing to you. If you are going through some work trials or maybe there's a personal attack against you or your family, then a series that's related to persevering through trials seems golden. It seems wonderful. It seems as though God is using his word to speak specifically to an immediate need of your life. But a lot of people do not wake up on a morning and say, the most immediate need of my life is to study the glory of God. It's important, absolutely. It's biblical, absolutely. But it seems more academic than what it seems to be practical. Well, if that's where you're coming from this morning, I want to try my best to help reframe this conversation at the very beginning. So these are in your notes, and that is, what can a study of the glory of God do? Well, studying the glory of God is a perspective study. That is, a correct perspective brings clarity. So for three weeks, we're going to do everything we can to bring clarity to the heart of God, the mind of God, the well of God, the ways of God. If you've ever been in one of those places where you're seeing difficult things happen and you're saying, God, why are you doing this? Or you're saying, God, how could anything good come out of these circumstances? What you're searching for is perspective. You want to understand for yourself. So in these three weeks, we are going to dig in and get a greater perspective of the big story that's happening in the Bible. We're going to dig in in order to find a perspective on what is the ultimate point of life. We're going to dig in and we're going to find perspective on how God can be absolutely glorified even in tragic circumstances. So this is a perspective study. But also studying the glory of God is a theological study. When people see the word theology or they hear the word theology, they get a little freaked out because they feel as though it's very academic. That's something that people need to hear about in seminary somewhere. Well, let me just say, theology is just the study of God. So if you have a desire to know God deeply, it will lead you into theology. If you want to know God's heart, God's character, God's attributes, God's ways, it's about theology. And what you'll find as you're studying theology is that there is an unrelenting focus that God has on his own glory. It's found from the very beginning of the Bible all the way to the very end of the Bible. In fact, if you were to ask the questions like, why did God create anything? Why did God choose Israel as his chosen people? Why did God pull them out of the land of Egypt? 
Why does God offer redemption to any of us today? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why does God allow sin to exist? All of the answers come back to it's for his glory. It is for his name. It is for his renown. It is for his namesake among the nations. It all comes back to the glory of God. This is also studying the glory of God is a heart study. That is, the more we see that everything points back to his glory, the more we will realize how we've made a lot of things about us. And that is an uncomfortable discovery to make. We like to think that we're not self-centered. We want others to look at us and say, that person is others-focused. They're always focusing on God. But the reality of it is that all of us struggle at some level with self-centeredness or making me the focus of everything that is going on. So when you study the glory of God, it brings those selfish tendencies to light. You're able to see those hidden motives. You're able to dig into what's going on truly in your heart. When you come face to face with passages dealing with the glory of God, it will begin to reveal stuff in us that you might not want to see, but you need to see. In some ways, it's like spiritual heart surgery. It gets in deep and addresses stuff that needs to be addressed. You'll begin to understand more and more why Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, Anyone who desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Because you'll find as you are pursuing Jesus that he leads us on a life of pursuing the glory of God and he leads us away from a life that is focused on selfish motives. There's another reason for studying it. That is, studying the glory of God is a maturity study. This idea is closely connected with the previous point, And that is, prior to Christ... Our natural tendency was to focus almost exclusively on me, self. How will this impact my life and my future and my plans? It's a lot about me. But whenever a person is saved, when they come into right relationship with God, God is now a part of their life and their verbiage changes from me to me and God. They look out and they say, my life is better with God in it. Me and God, we're going to do this. It's going to be a great life. And, and they continue with that verbiage until they fall into a number of passages challenging self once again. And then as you see those passages, your words begin to change from me to me and God to God and me. God now takes the first spot. We now fall into the second. And we're thinking, that's how it should be. God is first, I'm second. He's the preeminent one, I'm simply a follower. And, and that seems really good. It seems biblical. God's first in my life. And then you'll run into a passage like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And those phrases just begin to sink down a little bit deeper. I have been crucified. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And then you see that final transition. And that is you wake up to this awareness of the fact that it's not about me at all. It's completely about God. 
It's not about my ways and my happiness and my money and my future and my plans. Why? Because I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It is now about God's ways and God's purposes and God's desire and God's money because it is God who is living his life in and through me. And then you see the transition has happened. It starts with me. It goes to me and God. It then goes to God and me. And then it's finally just God. That is the natural progression of Christian maturity. That is a part of what happens in this study. When we begin to focus on the glory of God, it is training our eyes to see what the end game is all about. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. So when somebody says, I don't know if a study of the glory of God is immediately applicable in my life, I would say it is incredibly relevant to anyone who seeks a better perspective, who desires to know God deeply, who wants their heart to be right with God, and who aspires to move forward in Christian maturity. It is incredibly relevant in those areas. So we're breaking everything down over three weeks, and we're going to take today, and we're going to focus on rightful glory. Next week, I'm going to focus on stolen glory. And on the third week, we're going to talk about reflected glory. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to go with me to Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter number 6 will be in verses 1 through 5. I want to speak this morning on the subject of rightful glory. Rightful glory. It says in verse 1 and following, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, unless your Spirit guides us into this truth, God, we're going to miss it. We are so desperately in need of your Spirit to remove any distraction to focus our mind, and to allow these words off of your text to come alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the last things that he says in verse number five, for my eyes have seen the king. To study the glory of God is to see the king. I shared a couple of weeks ago that there's some words or ideas that are better communicated by what we see than by what we say. And the glory of God is one of those topics. And that is, instead of me spending the next week, three weeks, trying to describe the glory of God to you, I want us to join Isaiah and simply see the king. When you see the king, you see his glory. So here's the story in which Isaiah is writing from. In chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah describes how it is 
that basically God's people have rebelled against the Holy One as their king. In fact, in those passages, it says they have rejected the Holy One. They have despised the Holy One. They have rejected His Word. So in chapter 6, Isaiah is now telling of his personal encounter of sitting before, standing before the Holy One. The same one that had been despised and rejected in chapters 1 through 5, he now has this personal encounter. He is in the throne room of glory. He is there looking as God is seated on the throne. And he says in chapter 6 that when he sees God seated on the throne, that there's a time in which God purifies his mouth. And there's also a time in which he is now to take a message, a difficult message, to a group of people that are incredibly insensitive to the things of God. His message that he was supposed to bring was he was to preach judgment until God's people were either taken into exile or until there's only a small remnant that would remain. Now, any way I look at that, that does not sound like a fun ministry. I praise God that as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I get to preach a message of the gospel. Good news. It is that you can be rightly related with God. Your sins can be forgiven. You can experience why you were put on this earth to begin with. There's forgiveness that is available. That's the message I get a chance to preach. And Isaiah's message was, the people have rebelled. They've despised me. Preach judgment to them. Until they are taken into exile and there's only a handful of them left. I praise God that is not my ministry. So it's in that context, that focus, that we enter into chapter 6. And you can see why chapter 6 is now in somber tones. It begins with King Uzziah has died. Now King Uzziah reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years. He was considered to be the last great king of Judah. It was under Uzziah's reign that we find that the Philistines, the Arabians, and the Ammonites were finally brought into subjection. It was under Uzziah's reign that God's people were blessed with material possessions and wealth based on the promises of God. It was under Uzziah's reign that they had peace and they had freedom and they loved it. He was a very well-loved king. So when Uzziah died, there's now an anxiousness in the heart of the people. There's now a concern of, will our enemies come and take us captive at this point? Will the material blessings continue? Who is going to step in and fill the shoes of such a well-loved king who did so much for everyone that was in this land? And it's in this moment that Isaiah makes an incredible discovery. It's in your notes. Even if the outlook is bad, The uplook is always good. Even if the outlook is bad, even if you're saying, I'm anxious, I'm worried, there's problems, there's issues, even when the outlook is bad, the uplook is always good. Because yes, a great king vacated his earthly throne. But listen, the greatest king is still firmly seated on his heavenly throne. And he is still high, and he is still exalted, and he is still lifted up, and he is still sovereignly reigning over all of his creation. So what can we see in this view of the seated, exalted, reigning king that helps us to understand the glory of God? First thing I want you to see 
is God's glory is never diminished by circumstances. God's glory is never diminished by circumstances. Yes, there was uncertainty because Uzziah passed away. But it says in verse number 3, the whole earth is still full of God's glory. In other words, it's sad that he died, but it didn't take away from the glory of God. God is still completely glorious. Chapters 1 through 5 are sad because God's people lived in rebellion and they despised and they rejected God, but it did not take away from the glory of God. Verses 10 through 13 are going to be hard as God's people are going to be driven into exile. But their being in exile does not take away from the glory of God. He is still 100% glorious. He's glorious in good times. He is glorious in bad times. You can obey God and prove him glorious, or you can disobey God and still prove him glorious. He is completely glorious. His glory meter never dips below 100%. He's constantly glorious. Now you say, but, but Paul, look at all the problems around us. Look at all the dysfunction. Look at the sin. How could, how could God still be glorious? Because God uses even the sins and the depravity and the problems in order to point to him as being glorious. The fullness of God's glory is now graphically contrasted in this throne room scene. The people were sad. Because their beloved king had died. They were anxious. Their circumstances might have looked bleak. But when you see the throne of God, it is anything but sad. It is anything but uncertain. It is anything but bleak. Isaiah said he saw God seated as a king on his throne. And this throne is elevated and it is exalted. And he says, in the enormous train of his robe filled the temple, the train of a, a dignitary's robe. The longer the train, the bigger the train, the more prestigious the king, the more prestigious the individual. And he's saying the train of his robe is literally filling the entire temple. And he says the seraphim, the angelic beings, they hover around him continually praising God. And their praise is to the glory of God and their praise is to the holiness of God. And it says, as they praise God, the foundations of the temple itself are shaking. These are not your rosy cheek little plump cherubs that we find on Valentine's Day cards. These angelic beings, their very voice, not the voice of God, the voice of the seraphim themselves is shaking the foundation of the temple. It's a scene that brings awe and maybe a little bit of terror into our hearts. You almost feel as though Isaiah might have gotten too close to the king. The scene portrays this graphic contrast between our perspective here on earth and the reality surrounding God in heaven. Even in our darkest moments, God is still sovereignly seated. He is highly exalted. He is constantly praised. He is completely holy. And he is infinitely glorious. And that never changes based on our circumstances. It's this type of scene that you need to remind yourself of after you watch the evening news. 
When you see all the problems and the dysfunction and you see the greed and the corruption and the sin and the depravity and the hatred and you begin to let all that sink in, you could almost feel as though the sky is falling if you were to look around you. But the reality of that is, as a Christian, we are never in a place that we need to be pessimistic. Because our God is still sovereignly seated on his throne. He is still high and he is exalted. He is still constantly praised and constantly worshipped. He is glorious in every way. His gospel is still reaching the nations. People are still being saved. You find his kingdom is expanding. And we also understand the end of the story. He wins. You all, know, you all know how I don't like to watch my own teams play ball because I get so nervous that they're not going to win. That's why I record them. And if they win, I watch the end of the game. Here's what's happening. We can watch the game because our God wins. We know how this thing turns out on the other side. It's this scene that gives us optimism. Do you all know we're living in some of the greatest times ever? The gospel is reaching the nations. Tens of thousands of people a day are coming into right relationship with God. Prophecy is being fulfilled all around us. You and I get an opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom of endeavors in this place. It is wonderful. We get an awesome opportunity to pursue God. There's nothing to be pessimistic about. It helps, though, if we remember Isaiah's discovery. Even if the outlook is bad, the outlook is always good. Because it's all driving back to his glory. What else can we learn about God's glory from seeing the exalted king? Second, God's glory and holiness are continually declared. In this text, the seraphim are declaring God's glory and his holiness. The Bible speaks of different types of angelic beings. It speaks of angels and archangels and principalities and powers. It speaks of the cherubim, the seraphim. This is the only place in your Bible that the seraphim are specifically mentioned by name. The word seraph, it means to burn or the burning ones. Isaiah tells us that these angelic beings have six wings. With one pair, get this, they cover their face. Not from shame, not from sin, not from the fact that they have ever done anything to rebel. They are literally created for this moment right here to constantly declare the holiness of God and to proclaim his glory among the nations. And these individuals, the burning ones, are having to shield their face from the infinite glory and the radiance of the one who's on the throne. I read stuff like that, and I think sometimes we approach God the wrong way. We just casually drop in as though he's our buddy next door. And yet there's pieces in Scripture that would say we need to walk with some holy reverence in how we approach God. With one pair, they cover their face. With one pair, they hide their feet as a symbol of humility. With another pair, they hover, they fly in a readiness to depart at any moment if God so chooses to send them elsewhere. 
as interesting as their looks may be, what's more important is what they're saying. It says they're continually praising the holiness of God and declaring the glory of God. Verse number three, it says, and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The repetition of a word was a way of expressing what's referred to as a superlative. That is something being of highest quality or degree. By repeating the phrase, holy, 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 the seraphim are saying, God is completely holy. God is totally holy. God is absolutely holy. God is the holiest of all. God is infinitely holier than any other around him. When we think of holiness, a lot of times our definition is an absence of sin. Like somebody has a holy life, that is, there's absence of sin. And I believe that comes with a holy life, but the word holy itself, it speaks of a separateness or a distinctiveness from all others around it. So for example, if you were to look on the spine of your Bible, it says holy Bible. What it's saying here is this holy book is different than any other religious book that is out there. The Bible says that you and I are to be a part of the priesthood believers. We are a part of this holy priesthood. The idea there is that you and I should be distinct from the world that is around us. We are separate from the world that is around us. And here, it's looking at the holiness of God. And as the angels proclaim it, he is holy. He's totally holy. He's absolutely holy. He is completely holy. He is the holiest of anything in the world. He is so separate and distinct from all that are around him. That is what they're constantly saying. And then they go on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Two weeks ago, I gave a definition of the glory of God, and that is the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. It's the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's many perfections. Apply that thought into what they're saying here. The whole earth the whole world, everything you see is a gallery of the glory of God. In other words, if you were to walk into an art gallery, you will see that artist display of this is a piece and this reflects a part of that artist's character. Here's a sculpture and it reflects a part of their character, part of their creativity. And what they're saying here is the fact the whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with the infinite beauty of God. The whole earth is filled with his mighty perfections. Well, in other words, when you look out, you'll see the beauty of color and the vastness of his created beings from the smallest atom to the largest star, from insects that are pollinating flowers to salmon traveling thousands of miles back to their birthplace, from the highest heights to the depths of the sea, from the complexities of the human brain to the simplicity of a jellyfish. It's all saying, God is glorious. God is glorious. God is glorious. Look at it on display around you. Everything is pointing back to the glory of God. And that's what the Bible echoes as well. Every point, every page is declaring the glory of God. Here's what we find. 
God created us for His glory, Isaiah 43. He called Israel for His glory, Jeremiah 13. He brought His people out of Egypt for His glory, Psalm 106. He protected them in the wilderness for His glory, Ezekiel 20. God fills the earth with the knowledge of His glory, Habakkuk 2. His wrath makes known the wealth of His glory, Romans chapter 9. Our sin has fallen short of His glory, Romans chapter 3. He forgives our sin for the sake of his glory John chapter 12 everything that happens will one day rebound to the glory of God Romans chapter 11 and Jesus is coming again in the fullness of his glory 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 it's all for the glory of God everywhere we look every facet of creation every page of your Bible it is saying it's all about him it's all about his glory His glory is fully on display around us. Is there any wonder that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Not because it needs to be done. Not even because it's the right thing to do. Not because it makes you feel better about yourself. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The end of the road is that God may be glorified in this. What's a final thing that we can see about the glory of God? That is, God's glory reveals our true state before Him. God's glory reveals our true state before Him. This might sound strange, but you'll have to give me a moment to kind of pull my pieces together here. In secular psychology, there's a concept known as self-awareness. A person who has self-awareness is an individual who knows their strengths. They know their weaknesses. They know what they're passionate about. They know what they're not passionate about. They have an accurate view of what's going well in their life and what needs to change. They can readily see what fuels them and what feeds them and what it is that drains them of their energy. That's somebody who has self-awareness. But at the same time, When somebody doesn't have self-awareness, they can think that they're great at something that they're really not good at. They can spend all their time focused on doing things that are not within their strength. They can look at themselves and say, this is fantastic, when the reality is they might be horrible at it. And did you know friends and family will only lead to greater delusion in this area? Because friends and family want to seem supportive. They want to seem encouraging. Somebody's trying something, hey, God bless you, man. You're great at that. We don't want to say things sometimes that could seem offensive or something that might sound as though we are not as supportive as what we need to be. Now, I want you to take that idea, and I want us to bring it into a spiritual realm for just a moment. Just as somebody needs to have an awareness of their gifting and their talents, we also need to have an awareness of where we truly stand before God spiritually. We need to have an awareness of where our heart motives are at. We need to have an awareness of why we do what we do. And you can also find in this area that sometimes your friends and family can mislead you because they don't truly know what's going on deep down inside. We need something, someone to shine a clear light and give perspective on what's happening in the heart to help us truly understand 
where we are before God. When Isaiah sees God, listen to this, he now accurately sees himself. There was nothing in the passage saying that the seraph said, hey, Isaiah, here's a problem in your life. It was the seeing God highly exalted that his first statement was, woe is me for I am ruined. Or other translations say, I am undone or I am destroyed. And then he tells us why he's ruined. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. Now, it sounds strange. Why is he focused on the lips? Like there's so many other things he could be focused on here. But the issue is, the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to find out what's going on in somebody's heart, just listen to their words. It will tell you what they love. It will tell you what they focus on. It comes out. So he's describing the fact that, that there is a, a sin. He says, I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, this same phrase, I am ruined, is also translated I must be silent. Let's focus on that for a moment. He sees God highly exalted on his throne. The seraphim singing. And his words would be, I must be silent. Now when he says I must be silent, he's not talking to his future prophetic ministry after his lips have been cleansed. He would be referring to the fact of his inability to join with the seraphim in their song. Remember your context here. They are around God's throne in God's temple with God's angels as they are praising and declaring the holiness and the glory of God. Why would Isaiah say, I must be silent? Because of what he already told us in chapters 1 through 5. In chapters 1 through 5, he says that as a nation, they had rejected and despised the Holy One. In fact, God himself says in chapter 1 verse 2, that the sons he reared and brought up have revolted against me. God said in Isaiah 1-4, they have abandoned the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. God said in Isaiah 5-24, they have rejected the law of the Lord and despised the word of the Holy One. Let that word sink in. Despised. Despised. Hated. Anger against. He's saying, that's what my people have been seeing of me and saying of me and saying of my word. So as Isaiah recognizes how wicked and rebellious the nation has been, how they have despised the Holy One and despised His word, how they revolted against the very God that he's seeing seated on that throne, the very God who is high and lifted up and exalted in heaven, the very God whose glory has to be shielded from the ones who declare His glory, the very God who whose majesty and beauty and glory are echoed in every molecule of creation. When he sees that, he says, I need to be silent. Have you ever noticed how when there's sin in your life, you do not want to be in the presence of God? 
You don't want to read the Bible because you know the Bible kicks. You don't want to spend extra time in prayer because when you're with God in prayer, He brings to the surface the issues of the heart. And Isaiah is saying, knowing what's in my heart, I need you to sit in silence because I can't join in that song. This is Paul talking. One of the greatest needs in the contemporary church today is to get a fresh glimpse of our lives in light of the glory of God. Because sometimes we're singing when we should be silent. Sometimes we're going through the motions when there's nothing on the inside that is screaming of the holiness of God. Isaiah's conviction led to Isaiah's confession. Isaiah's confession led to Isaiah's cleansing. Isaiah's cleansing now leads to Isaiah's commissioning. In order to be sent out as the mouthpiece of God, God said, I need to do a work in you first. Before we can say, here's what God says for you, we first need to sit and say, God, what are you saying to me? I've shared this many times before. God never breaks us to leave us broken. God breaks us so that we see those issues that are interfering with our ability to live the abundant life. When he points those out, we're in a deciding moment then. When he points it out, the issue is, will I hold on to the thing that God hates? Or will I submit myself before the holy king and confess that sin before him and walk in the freedom of the forgiveness that I now have in Christ? God never breaks us to leave us broken. All rightful glory is directed to God alone. The issue is not, will he be glorified? God will always be glorified. The issue is whether or not our lives will be a clear reflection of his glory. Can people look at us and say, God's beauty and his many perfections are on display in that person's life. Can they look over your story and say, I know where that person came from, and I see him here today, and all I can say is, God did something in them. That's what it's supposed to happen in our lives. If we fail to walk in the light of God's glory, we will never get an accurate view of where we are before God. We find in Scripture that God and his word are used in order to reveal things in our life that we need to see so that they might be brought in repentance towards God. So here's my, here's my challenge for you in this next week. I'm praying that you will sit with God and say, God, is there any place in my life right now in which your glory is not being clearly seen because of how I'm living? 
are there issues in my mind, issues in my motives, issues in my actions, issues in how I live, issues in how I run my business, issues in how I lead my family? God, what in my life right now is not clearly reflecting your glory? And whatever that is, I want to encourage you, bring it to God and confess it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, we already have forgiveness in Christ. The issue right now is whether or not we walk in the fullness of a forgiven life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we close out yet another difficult text in some ways, not difficult in what it means, but difficult in how it applies and how it lands in our life, God, I pray that you would help us to be extremely courageous in order to not try to hide behind excuses or anything else, but God, to simply sit and to ask you to search our hearts. Is there anything in our lives that does not clearly reflect your glory? God, over the next several weeks, we pray that you would help us to understand the primacy of your glory that it all points back to you, that your glory is the why behind the what. Why do we do it? For your glory. Why should we serve? For your glory. Why walk in holiness? For your glory. Why love our neighbor as we love ourselves? For your glory. God, may it all begin to come back to this incredible truth that it is all about your glory. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.